0: Sir! So, you can't go! All the plants are gonna die!
1: I'm gonna
2: take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors.
0: It's evil! Don't touch it!
2: The name's Pliskin.
0: No why Hang on!
3: Welcome to a very special vintage video Patreon pick where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
4: I'm Jesse Bayless.
1: And I'm Richard Wells.
3: And today, Carlos Moda has asked us to review The Manchurian Candidate, released October 24th, 1962. It was written by George Axelrod, based on a novel by Richard Condon, with uncredited work from John Frankenheimer, directed by Frankenheimer, and released by United Artists. In 1959, Richard Condon's The Manchurian Candidate was published, the novel. Impressively, accusations of plagiarism took until 1998 to crop up, when software developer C.J. Silverio found that Condon had borrowed long passages from Robert Graves' 1934 novel I, Claudius. Condon credited his novel's inspiration to a nonfiction work, specifically Conditioned Reflex Therapy, by psychologist Andrew Salter, the father of behavioral therapy. The film rights were quickly snatched up by Irving Swifty Lazar, who we've mentioned on the show as being a notorious super agent, and based on the pictures I found, very likely the inspiration for the Dancing Six Flags guy. (laughs) Seriously though, look him up. Do you guys recall our previous mentions of Swifty Lazar? No. In History of the World Part One, Mel Brooks' agent was named Swiftus Lazarus. Oh.
1: Back in the line. He's not in line, he's not in line, he's my
3: agent, Swiftus. Also, in The Mirror Cracked, Tony Curtis's Martin N. Fenn gets a phone call from the super agent. Swifty! How are you,
0: Swifty? What are you doing?
1: You keep saying super agent, and for some reason I'm going like James Bond
0: (laughs) super agent. No,
3: that's secret agent, (laughs) not super agent. One of Swifty's clients was screenwriter George Axelrod, who was then assigned to adapt the novel. Robert Wagner was first announced in the role of the titular Manchurian candidate, and later replaced with Tony Curtis on the way to Lawrence Harvey. Curtis still technically makes an appearance in the film on a magazine cover near the start. And, of course, his wife at the time, Janet Lee, appears among the cast, though she was served divorce papers on set.
1: Oh Oh my god.
3: Yeah. When Sinatra became involved, his personal production company, Essex Productions, bought the rights from Axelrod and Frankenheimer so that he could be a producing partner on the film. Of the film's $2.2 million budget, a full million went to just Sinatra, who also requested that his scenes be shot first... In a maximum of 15 days, never before 11 a.m., and that he be shown all the dailies in advance of the film being edited. Wow! An additional 200,000 went to Lawrence Harvey, leaving a lone million for the entire rest of the cast and production to share. United Artists president Arthur Krim, initially had no interest in distributing, fearing that it would be irresponsible to depict such a realistic political assassination. As a personal friend of the sitting president's, Sinatra convinced John F. Kennedy who he knew to be a fan of the original novel, to reach out to Krim and give his blessing to a film adaptation, at which point Krim changed his tune.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a little... Right?
3: Sinatra recommended Lucille Ball for the part of Eleanor Island, but was overruled by Frankenheimer, who had just directed Angela Lansbury in All Fall Down earlier the same year. He screened the film for Sinatra to convince him that she was right for the part, despite being a mere three years older than Lawrence Harvey playing her son. How old would you guess Lansbury was when this film was made? Uh, 45? 36. Oh, really? Wow. She was 36-year-old playing the mother of 33-year-old Lawrence Harvey, which literally makes as much sense as me right now playing her father in this film. Huh. Because I'm three years older than she was. Joe Adams was cast as the psychiatrist, and amazingly, in 1962, he became the first African-American actor cast in a role that wasn't explicitly written to be played by an African-American. Even more progressively, the first actor cast in this part was actually Lena Horne, but when she was suddenly unavailable, Adams was brought in. The film screened at the White House for JFK, and a year later, Kennedy was assassinated. Author Condon was asked if his novel may have inspired Lee Harvey Oswald, and he admitted that it may have, but that he was not alone in observing a growing mentality that peaceful conflict resolution seemed less and less possible. It has been widely reported and nearly as widely debunked that the film was essentially shelved in the wake of Kennedy's assassination out of respect to the deceased, but the truth is that Sinatra was disappointed with the film's box office take, and when the full rights to the film reverted back to him, he didn't bother pursuing a home video release until the film's 25th anniversary. By then, the rumor mill had developed its own explanation for the delay, and the film achieved a sort of legendary mythos. Despite its mediocre earnings, the Manchurian candidate landed Oscar nominations for Lansbury and the editors, but took home neither. It was the only Best Editing nominee not to also make the Best Picture category. When Sinatra's daughter Tina inherited the film rights, she set in motion a remake directed by Jonathan Demme, starring Denzel Washington, Liev Schreiber, and Meryl Streep in the Sinatra, Harvey, and Lansbury roles. It makes some significant changes to the stories of the novel and original film, but we'll discuss the changes at the end. In addition to the original film and remake, Condon's novel has also been adapted into a stage play in the early 90s and even most recently an opera by the same title that premiered in 2015. Hmm. The film opens in Korea in 1952, an American jeep rattles along a muddy road driven by Raymond Shaw as played by Lawrence Harvey. He parks outside a brothel and heads inside while his passenger, Major Bennett Marco, played by Frank Sinatra, smokes in the passenger seat. Inside, Shaw finds his entire company gallivanting, emphasis on the gals and even as one of the girls tries to pull him into their fun he blows a whistle and orders all the men to attention they quickly vacate the place sometime later we see a few of the same men being led along a river by a korean guide named chun jin played by sicilian spanish actor henry silva chun jin warns the men there is quicksand ahead and advises moving single file but marco says single file is too risky eventually they go along with his advice apparently to avoid quicksand but the terrain as we see it is rocky with lots of dead trees and clearly no quicksand to worry about
4: well, is quicksand is not even real is it
3: not in the way that film portrays it yeah. for the most part but also single file would not help in the event well, I, of
4: I mean i guess if that guy's stuck i just don't follow him
3: right <laughs> <laughs> it's the same rules if you're walking
1: through a minefield
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah the entire line of are ambushed simultaneously and knocked unconscious Chun Jin gets a big handshake from the leader of the captors and the unconscious men are transported by helicopter. We get a quick title sequence decorated with the Queen of Diamonds and then we're back into the film.
1: So the Queen of Diamonds is, I can't tell if this is just like they just took a playing card and blew it up or was this intentionally made to look like Angela Lansbury?
3: Oh, I'm not sure.
1: Because the, the Queen on the Queen of Diamonds looks like they try to do a caricature of Lansbury. I wouldn't
3: be surprised. I mean, she is supposed to be the Queen of Diamonds in mm-hmm. the story. We see a marching band attending a literal hero's welcome as an Air Force plane touches down on an airfield. A narrator gives us a bit of exposition.
2: This nation jealously guards its highest award for valor, the Congressional Medal of Honor. In the Korean War, with 5,720,000 personnel engaged, only 77 men were so honored. One of these 77 men was Staff Sergeant Raymond Shaw.
3: Right on cue, Shaw, as played by Lawrence Harvey, emerges from the plane, embarrassed by the pageantry. His mother, Eleanor Iceland, pushes her way through the crowd to approach him. She coordinates the raising of a banner over her son's head, which reads, Johnny Iceland's boy, and Shaw's stepfather, Senator Iceland, tosses a hand over his shoulder. Shaw puts it together quickly that his mother planned all this to make her husband look patriotic, and Shaw is insulted. As they ride together in a car, Eleanor makes the case that she cares about both of them, and she just wants what's best for them. Shaw repeatedly begs his mother to stop talking, but she can't seem to hear him. The narration comes back to describe the incredible act of heroism for which Shaw has been recognized today.
2: His citation attested to by his commanding officer, Captain Bennett Marco, and the nine surviving members of his patrol read in part. Displaying valor above and beyond the call of duty, did single-handedly save the lives of nine members of his patrol Capturing an enemy machine gun nest, and taking out in the process a full company of enemy infantry.
3: The car takes them to a private plane that Senator Iceland uses to campaign with. The plane used here is actually Sinatra's personal plane. Shaw informs his mother that he has secured a job as a research assistant to a journalist in New York, who has spoken ill of his stepfather.
2: We discovered that we had a great deal in common.
3: What could you
0: possibly have in common with that dreadful old man?
2: Well, for one thing, we discovered that we both loathe and despise you and Johnny.
3: Now we cut away to Major Marco, a squadmate of Shaw's, reassigned after the war to Army Intelligence. We see Marco in his bed, played by Frank Sinatra, and dripping with sweat. The narration informs us that he's plagued with regular nightmares. We push into his face and dissolve into one of them. We're inside the lobby of the Spring Lake Hotel, and we see Marco sitting at the end of a row of chairs, occupied by the men he served with. They all seem immensely bored, by Mrs. Henry Whittaker's speech on hydrangeas. The camera spins around the room, and when we're pointed back to the stage, the soldiers haven't moved, but the ladies of the Garden Club have all been replaced with an assortment of Russian agents, with big pictures of Stalin and Mao mounted in the background.
4: I was so incredibly confused. I mean, I should say that I had never seen this movie before. Yeah. I knew absolutely nothing about it. I had heard the title before, but I was certain it was some sort of, like, courtroom drama like procedural boring movie (laughs) Mm. and i was just like what is happening
1: here very
3: disorienting
1: (laughs) well especially these these scenes of this meeting because of how amazing the the cross-editing and changing of the sets and stuff
3: are and uh, the i think the editing oscar went to lawrence of arabia um, which is also pretty incredibly paced for as long as it is but i i don't think that it shouldn't have gone to this movie. Like, I wouldn't have been disappointed if this had gotten the editing Oscar. The man at center stage explains to us why he has just replaced Mrs. Whitaker.
0: I must ask you to forgive their somewhat lackadaisical manners, but I have conditioned them, or brainwashed them, which I understand is the new American word, to believe that they are waiting out a storm in the lobby of a small hotel in New Jersey, where a meeting of the Ladies' Garden Club is in progress.
3: On a cut, the man turns back to Mrs. Whitaker and tells the listening audience that these dumb Americans are willingly smoking literal shit. Yeah, dung. Oh, tastes good. (laughs) Like a cigarette should. (laughs) As a reference to the Winston cigarette slogan. Winston tastes good like a
2: cigarette should. Winston tastes good like a cigarette
0: should.
3: The host introduces Raymond Shaw, who begins pantomiming a game of solitaire with invisible cards. One of the women in the audience surrenders a handkerchief to use as a murder weapon. They ask Shaw which of these men is his favorite person, and he says Marco. But they need Marco to recommend him for the Congressional Medal of Honor, so they ask for his next favorite, and he says Ed Mavoli.
0: Take this scarf and strangle Ed Mavoli uh, to death. Yes, ma'am.
3: Shaw does what he is told completely dispassionately and strangles his fellow soldier to death. None of the other men raise a finger to stop him. Just as the man succumbs to strangulation, we see Major Marco sitting up in bed screaming in terror. The next day, we see Marco sharing these dreams with a group of Army intelligence officers who ask if anyone else from their group experienced the same dreams, but Marco's not sure because he didn't check with anybody yet. Yeah. But But, why would you assume that anybody else has a dream that you have? Why would you bring it up to Army intelligence?
1: Well, yeah, I, I found this whole thing very curious. One, that they were even willing to entertain we're going to have a meeting because you had a weird right. dream.
3: <laughs> I definitely wouldn't say anything to them until I had heard from a second guy Yeah, that this dream was a recurring thing. But also, he works in Army Intelligence, so he was just kind of like, hey, after lunch, can we sit down and talk about this dream I had?
1: Well, and my, my first instinct was maybe they are aware of brainwashing and that it's a risk that if, if someone is captured that they might be brainwashed. Maybe. Yeah,
4: but I feel like if you knew that, you would have actually taken stronger measures than he did
3: sure that's fair marco is concerned because the casualties of his dream are also the casualties of their mission in korea they remind marco of shaw's inarguably patriotic record as the stepson of a sitting congressman and the son of a woman who runs various patriotic organizations they ask marco his feelings about shaw
0: raymond shaw is the kindest bravest warmest most wonderful human
3: being i've ever known in my life The Brass diagnosed Marco's dream as what is essentially post-traumatic stress disorder.
1: I mean, I don't disagree. Yeah. (laughs) I do think that that's what this is. Yeah.
4: And it's not unusual that you would dream or rationalize, you know, horrors by like trying to attribute, you know, the actual deaths to reason. Right. And to feel guilty about it.
3: Yeah. And they suggest a reassignment to public relations until the dreams have stopped. We cut to a press conference being held by the secretary of, I believe, defense. Yes. And he's being questioned on a recent cut to the Navy budget, but points out that we're no longer at war and the expenditure is superfluous. Suddenly, Senator Iceland stands in the audience to ask a question.
2: And I have a question so serious that the safety of our nation may well depend on your answer.
3: The SecDef has no patience for the senator's question before he's even heard it. Marco, sitting beside him, suggests the secretary hear the senator out.
0: Mr. Secretary, I'm kind of new at this job, but I don't think it's good public relations to talk that way to the United States senator, even if he is an idiot.
3: Turns out there isn't a question. He just has a list of 207 alleged communists working in the Defense Department. SecDef is obviously quick to deny the accusation, but the room erupts into shouts immediately. All of this is being broadcast live on television for the American people to eat up. Eleanor Iceland watches the broadcast on a television at the sidelines of the argument. On his way out of the room, Iceland is swarmed with reporters, and Marco sneaks in among them to ask for the precise number of communists one more time.
2: How many communists did you say? Oh, uh, oh, Major, I said they were exactly... uh, I've absolutely proved there are uh, 104 card-carrying communists in the Defense Department at this time. How many, sir? Uh, 275, and that's absolutely
3: all I have to say on the subject this time. Come (laughs) here. That's a drastically different number than you just said.
1: Well, and Eleanor is pretty great in this scene, too, because she keeps trying to, like, get coats and like and like she's like awkwardly like raising her arms above to try to block the senator while yeah. she's like like she's pretending to put on her coat but she's yeah. like throwing her sleeve way up in the air to block everyone's view yeah it's
3: good we cut to the bedroom of Al Melvin an African-American soldier from the same patrol as Shaw and Marco and then into the sleeping man's dream as Mavoli is dropped to the floor dead and the Garden Club applauds next Marco is called to stand and speak and they ask what he'll do when he returns to army headquarters. His plan is to report Shaw's heroic deeds and recommend him for the Congressional Medal of Honor. The story involves Shaw single-handedly taking out an entire company of enemy soldiers and when someone from the audience realizes they're a bit upset about it. But when we cut back to the Garden Club version of the scene, all the women are African-American now. A complete company! What the hell is this? We can spare an
0: imaginary company of infantry for his particular plan. Nikolai
2: Mikalich. All right. If we are out to humiliate our brave Chinese ally in the newspapers of the world, we might as well make it a full battalion.
0: (laughs) We don't object, comrade. I assure you of that. Over, comrade. We thank you for thinking of the matter in that light. Yeah,
1: so just setting the scene here is we see the soldiers with the garden club and old ladies, and then the camera will turn and we'll see, like, a room full of generals and soldiers. But then when we cut back, the soldiers are with the scientists, And then we cut back and it's a room full of old ladies and it keeps going back and forth. And sometimes there are soldiers in with the old ladies. Right. Sometimes like, sometimes the women are speaking with deep voiced men voices. Yeah. It's such a great disorienting blend. Every time the camera changes angle, something's different.
3: Yeah. Marco is asked to hand his gun to Raymond Shaw to shoot the youngest member of their squad, Bobby Lembeck, in the forehead again shaw cooperates without question and the young boy's blood and brain matter splatter across a hanging photo of stalin it's the most brutal shot in the whole film for sure
1: yeah i i was i'm wondering if this is why they filmed it in black and white
3: maybe Hmm. we cut from this moment to melvin waking in bed and screaming bloody murder it seems the women from the garden club were black because he is And he tells his wife that the dreams have been happening for weeks, which she would obviously know if he wakes up like this every time. But now we have someone to corroborate Marco's testimony. His wife recommends reaching out to Shaw to share his experience. Maybe, maybe I will. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. If anybody can help me, he can!
0: You like him a lot, don't you?
2: Raymond Shaw is the bravest, kindest, warmest, most wonderful human being I've ever known in my life
3: we cut to raymond shaw receiving the letter from his fellow soldier as he reads the letter shaw is interrupted by a phone call and the voice on the other end makes a suggestion raymond why don't you pass the time by playing a little solitaire he pulls out a deck of cards and starts flopping them down on a table in front of him when he flips over the queen of diamonds the phone rings again and the same voice tells him of an appointment at a sanitarium next week
1: so i'm assuming that this deck of cards is always rigged and ready to go with the queen of diamonds in a playable, Near the top yeah yeah because you know, for people who don't know you put a lot of face down cards yeah. in solitaire it's like sitting
3: there for 45 minutes the guy on the phone's like so did you find that uh queen of diamonds yet
1: <laughs> and he's playing hardcore solitaire too where you draw three cards at a time
3: yeah instead of just one we cut to shaw's appointment as he lies on the table and there's a knock at the door
0: i'm radzilka yes yen lo have love institute
3: the Russian agent, Zilkov, excuses the medical team so he can meet with the Chinese agent, Lo, in private. The building they're holding Shaw in is a Soviet property in America. These two floors are blocked off from the rest of the building, but the other floors operate as a successful rehab for wealthy people. The Chinese agent, Lo, mocks the Russian agent, Zilkov, for engaging in capitalism.
0: Profit? Fiscal year? Beware, my dear Zilkov, virus of capitalism is highly infectious. Soon you'll be letting money out at interest. You must try, Comrade Zilkov, to cultivate a sense of humor. There's nothing like a good laugh now and then to lighten the burdens of the day.
3: (laughs) Shaw is asked to relay the events of the night for which he was awarded his medal, and he tells the story as it was written for him to remember. Lowe talks about how guilt and fear are uniquely American emotions, and that, hypnotized to avoid them, Shaw has become the perfect killing machine. Before they turn over Shaw to his American operator, Zilkov demands a test of his abilities, requesting an assassination. Lowe thinks it's too dangerous to test Shaw in advance, but reluctantly agrees, with a condition that if Raymond is caught in the act, he should be programmed to kill whoever catches him. In selecting a target, Lowe suggests Mr. Gaines, the journalist who just hired Shaw to write for his New York paper.
4: I was certain in this scene he was just going to turn and be like, oh, you'll, we should just kill you. Yeah. Like,
3: <laughs> well, he he kind of looks at him like, Yeah. Oh, really? We should have him kill somebody in yeah. advance? No, okay, we'll we'll find another guy. But I, I did think, like, another potential problem is if people keep finding you in the act and he just has to keep killing people over and over and yeah. over, like a domino effect on its way out of the building.
4: Well, okay, because you said, you said guilt and fear, right? Yeah. Guilt and fear. So, like, if you don't have fear, you might not be particularly careful. Right. So... He might just be like, oh, in front of everybody, just kill this guy. Yeah,
3: and then anybody who sees it, you have to go around the room and kill every yeah, single person.
1: Like that, the video of the guy slapping all the people at a party.
3: Right, <laughs> but with a gun. <laughs> Shaw heads immediately to Mr. Gaines' home and somehow accesses the man's bedroom at 4 a.m. to find him wearing his deceased wife's nightgown in bed with a book. <laughs> I like that detail. It's just yeah. it's pointless, but it's funny. And
1: He's like, it's like, Don't get any ideas about what i'm wearing
3: (laughs) yeah it's just comfortable for reading at night he approaches the bed until he eclipses the man and we cut away to imply the assassination we cut to marco's apartment where he's visited by a colonel he's here essentially to tell marco that he's an embarrassment to army intelligence and marco admits that he has claimed to admire shaw but also senses it isn't true
0: i said raymond shaw is the kindest warmest bravest most wonderful human being i've ever known in my life And even now I feel that way, this minute. And yet, somewhere in the back of my mind, something tells me it's not true. It's just not true. It isn't as if Raymond's hard to like. He's impossible to like. In fact, he's probably one of the most repulsive human beings I've ever known in my
3: whole, all of my life. (laughs) He like stumbles over the line.
1: Um, I'm wondering, uh, they don't go into it too much, but the random books that he's getting yeah is that part of his conditioning
3: i don't know that they, they don't really go into marco's conditioning a lot we don't know what his trigger words are yeah. or anything like that
1: because it seems like i was like oh i know this guy who sends me random books that yeah. sounds like an element of conditioning right because they're all they're all so unbelievably random yeah
3: he puts marco on indefinite sick leave marco tries to refuse but the colonel makes it clear this is in order We cut to a train where Marco struggles to get a cigarette lit and then has a mini panic attack before heading to the small compartment between cars to catch his breath. A young woman, played by Janet Lee follows him away and they have a very confusing conversation.
4: Not just confusing conversation. Nonsensical. And also the fact that she is sitting next to a man that just freaks out and flips a table over after not being able to light a cigarette.
3: And then she just follows him out.
4: And she's like, yeah, I'm... I need to go after this dude. Yeah, that's
3: and what she people is always do. Into it, <laughs> you follow the crazy guy out of the train car after he flips a bunch of stuff so on. the
1: So mysterious. <laughs> <laughs> I have to know more that.
3: about him.
0: Maryland's a beautiful state.
3: This is Delaware.
0: I know. I was one of the original Chinese workmen who laid the track on this stretch.
3: Obviously, based on what we've seen, we're to expect that this is a Chinese agent using hypnotism to appear to him as a beautiful woman. But spoiler alert: that's not the case. This is just another passenger, and she seems to speak in these bizarre riddles as an icebreaker. She introduces herself first as Eugenie, and then Eugenie Rose, but admits her friends call her Rosie. For some reason, in the course of their conversation, she tells Marco her address, apartment number, phone number. She's just spilling the beans on this guy.
4: I mean, that's what you gotta do when you can't, like, exchange yeah. Instagrams.
3: Yeah, it's like, I need a QR code for your Snap. Oh wait, that doesn't exist yet. Eldorado 59970. <laughs> Can you remember that? Yes, for some reason. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have a very good memory for, for con- being conditioned to remember things.
3: <laughs> At the time, numbers that started with El Dorado 5 was the equivalent of a 555 number and that they never connected to anyone. But since 2009, the El Dorado 5 extension actually connects to an area code.
4: Wait a minute. Are we saying that words correlate to yes phone that's numbers? how
3: that's how butterfield eight you know
4: well i know i know that that's how they used to like yeah, that's, that's how like, they
3: did at the time yeah but 62.
4: you're saying that that el dorado five is an area code
3: el dorado the way those things work is you use the first letters of the phrase and you dial those letters out on the keypad
4: oh okay
3: so they the letters equal numbers and numbers are parts of phone numbers
4: Okay, I did not know that the yeah. letters were, I, I thought the word, I, I honestly thought it was just a, an operator thing, like, you know. it's just.
3: But it does seem like it would be easier to remember numbers in that place. Yeah. Uh,
4: maybe, maybe not.
3: But maybe the words El Dorado give the number a flavor in your head.
4: Your Mexican flavor. <laughs> Spicy.
3: <laughs> Marco tells her that he's headed to New York, where he intends to reconnect with an old war buddy janet lee has said the disorienting dialogue of the scene made it very difficult to believably deliver because we're expected to believe that this woman is just a normal person despite her bizarre comments i didn't think that at all i was sure that this was a chinese agent
1: yeah because he's sweating like he's like under right like he's under some kind of hypnosis
3: and she says she was a chinese workman on this line (laughs) of track out at raymond shaw's office his secretary tells him he has a visitor
0: an oriental gentleman's here he said he was in the army
2: with
3: you there were no oriental gentlemen in the army with me
0: he is
2: very insistent sir all right I show him in.
3: when the man enters it's chun jin the interpreter who led the patrol to their capture at the start of the film he's here looking for work but shaw has little use for an interpreter in america chun jin lists his other abilities and shaw takes him on as a valet and cook we cut to senator iceland's home and we see his reflection in a framed painting of Abe Lincoln, there's Abe Lincolns all over the Iceland home.
4: It's like they just really wanna be shot in the head.
3: Right, exactly. He's begging Eleanor to decide on an official number of communists to report because he thinks he looks foolish changing the number all the time. She tells him the number doesn't matter. (laughs)
0: they writing about all over this country and what are they saying are they saying are there any communists in the defense department of course not they're saying how many
4: communists are there in the defense department and they're probably saying that because you keep switching the number (laughs) yeah but
3: they'll stop arguing that point as soon as you pick a solid number to go with though he gets her point but he'd still like a simple number that she can trust him to remember and then we get the funniest joke in the film as he taps a bottle of Heinz ketchup onto a steak, and we cut to him on the floor of congress
2: there are exactly 57 card-carrying members
0: of the communist party in the department of defense at this time
3: as a reference to heinz's famous 57 varieties though the bottle in this scene doesn't have the distinctive 57 sticker on the neck we're supposed to make that connection ourselves
4: isn't the 57 also uh, the actual heinz 57 also arbitrary I don't think it actually relates to varieties or recipes or anything. Or oh, any. maybe. I, I think it is just an arbitrary number that they Could picked.
3: Be. We cut to Major Marco being directed to the apartment of Raymond Shaw by an elevator man, but when Chun Jin opens the door, the two men are instantly at each other's throats. There's lots of punches thrown back and forth, while Marco demands to know what Raymond was doing with his hands during their brainwashing session.
0: How did the old lady turn into Russians? <laughs> what was Raymond doing with his hands?
3: Chun Jin doesn't answer, and they even do a bit of martial arts sparring for what was technically the first time in an American film. We hadn't seen Kung Fu Fighting in an American movie until this moment.
4: Huh. Okay.
3: Because the production supposedly did not employ stuntmen for this scene, Sinatra actually broke a finger judo chopping through that desk. Yeah. Yeah. Resulting in lifelong pain that later ruled him out for playing the title character of Dirty Harry. Yeah. since he couldn't wield the character's distinctive revolver.
4: I mean, I think it's pretty obvious though that they had never filmed kung fu before because it's just really boring the way they shot it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no there's no like extra hard like, you know, hit sounds when they connect mm-hmm. with each other. It's like, you know, the soft sounds of people actually wrestling. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's true. And and but, but also why does Sinatra know martial arts? Why not? like but is that part of time
3: in manchuria yeah i was
1: gonna say like was that part of his conditioning conditioning, Mm -hmm. should should you get caught you can fight your way out of a situation no
3: that makes it the elevator man returns with two cops who quickly break up the fight and apprehend marco sometime later he sits alone in a police station until rosie appears to bail him out he doesn't know anyone else in town It's also a clever way to test if she gave him her real information or not, but I don't know why she would surrender fake information so willingly.
4: (laughs) She's super eager to give out a fake number.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I just came up with a fake number. Eldorado 5 is bullshit they share a taxi and rosie admits that she was engaged until a few hours ago and she broke it off because she was certain that she and marco were meant to be together maybe wait for the guy to call once What? <laughs> like you didn't even know you were going to see this person again
4: i mean i guess she's questioning the relationship in general so it doesn't matter if he calls but mm-hmm. like it's great that he did but this man clearly seems insane yeah and you just broke off your engagement for him
1: yep but she's clearly insane as well yeah Aww, that's true
4: the perfect pair <laughs>
1: It's like, I've been looking for a
3: crazy guy. He returns to Shaw's apartment and tries to explain his actions from earlier in the day. The apartment is still in shambles and Shaw is furious. Marco tries to tell him about his nightmares, but pauses briefly when he finds the Congressional Medal of Honor in the mess on the floor. Shaw is able to guess the rest of the dream.
2: Is it about a Russian general and some Chinese and me and the men who are on the patrol?
3: How did you know that? How do you know? he tells marco about the letter he got from their fellow soldier melvin which he also destroyed immediately after he read it he didn't write anything back he was just like oh a letter from a guy i know oh weird dream delete
4: well he's conditioned to uh stop people from yeah. knowing he who he is so yep. that letter might uh might have been evidence I guess. but he
3: probably shouldn't have told marco about it <laughs> yeah in that case fair Marco takes this new information directly back to Army Intelligence, and he and Melvin separately are shown photographs of Soviet officials mixed into a lot of decoy photos, and both men identify the same subjects from their dream.
2: Exactly one hour ago,
0: your friend Mr. Alan Melvin in Wainwright, Alaska, made the same two photographs.
3: Alaska?
1: (laughs) They sent him all the way to Alaska?
3: That's where he had to go to identify the pictures? No, I assume he lived in Alaska.
1: No, but that's what I'm saying, like...
3: It's like, Man, Alaska? Jesus. What? I don't understand. Melvin lived in Alaska. He was at home. I know it just
1: seems it just seems like such a weird place
3: to live. Yeah. Why would anyone <laughs> live in Alaska? No, it, on not purpose?
4: not that many people do to be honest. Yeah.
1: It, it just seems like such a weird detail. Like yeah. like oh, he lives in Alaska by the way. It's like,
3: what? Where would be a normal state for Melvin to live? Nebraska.
1: Nebraska. No. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, any anywhere on the main 48? So if you were Hawaiian, you would be no. equally flabbergasted. Uh,
4: yeah. Apparently it, you're an anti-Alaskan. I don't yeah, no, understand what this sentiment is about.
3: It just,
1: it's just a, to me, it's just a weird location. Do to you have remember the last
3: film that we had with Alaskan locations?
4: Oh, um.
3: I don't know if it's the last film. It's the last one I can remember.
4: Nothing personal?
3: That's right. <laughs> is that where the seals Clubbing seals? Yep. It's <laughs> where they were building a giant town on the coast and clubbing some seals keeping it real marco is assigned to observe raymond shaw for a joint operation of the cia and fbi yeah let's get the crazy guy to head this committee
1: that's what's insane yeah it's like they they completely believe him yeah which which i could have used earlier in the film of brainwashing is a thing that we have to now be worried about yeah
3: and and so far we've confirmed that frank sinatra yeah melvin and Shaw are all brainwashed by the enemy. So why would we put Sinatra in charge of this mission? Exactly.
4: Well, and not immediately grab these guys yeah. and like, try to deprogram them.
3: Exactly. We cut back to Shaw's apartment where Marco and Shaw are getting wasted together. Shaw tells the story of a relationship he had with Jocelyn Jordan, daughter of Senator Thomas Jordan. His mother, Eleanor, broke off their relationship for political reasons, and Shaw blames his general bitterness on the end of this relationship. Shaw met Jocelyn when she found him on a hike, having been bit by a snake. We're entreated with a flashback, but we don't get much more info than he already said. Yeah,
1: it it was kind of just like, this is what you said.
3: Yeah. She treats his snake bite using her shirt as a tourniquet. Back at her father's cabin, Shaw is attended to by Jocelyn and her father. Shaw finally introduces himself, and then the senator does the same.
2: I once found it
0: necessary to sue your mother for defamation of character and slander. My name is Thomas Jordan, Senator Thomas Jordan.
3: The communist? He won $65,000 in the suit and paid it all to the ACLU. Shaw wastes no time at all in changing the subject by proposing to Jocelyn immediately. We get a montage of their relationship together, but it comes crashing to a halt at the insistence of Shaw's mother.
0: I want to talk to you about that communist tart. Shut up with that mother, shut up!
3: Eleanor suggests that her father's communist agenda puts Jocelyn herself in question as a potential communist plot to seduce him. He covers his ears to block out her voice, but she doesn't stop talking, same as before, and the scene dissolves away while Shaw admits to Marco that he and his mother wrote a breakup letter together and then Shaw shipped off to war the next day. He's moved to tears by the memory of it. Sometime later, Shaw stops by a local pub to get another drink, and by complete chance, the bartender says Shaw's entire sleeper agent passphrase, and he demands a deck of cards immediately.
2: Why don't you pass the time by playing a little solitaire? So he will says to me, cards, please.
3: "Do they just have decks of
1: cards at bars?" I guess.
3: I think part of the plot was that they have to be. It has to be something so common that someone will show him a queen of diamonds.
1: But then, but this isn't a anyway. set of but th- but this is this is where you would encounter the problem that we set up before in if that, the Queen
3: of diamonds is in the wrong place
1: on the deck. Yeah, it could be buried in the far deep stack, but and, he should but, always
3: have one in his pocket. He but shouldn't.
4: I assumed that do they want him randomly going off and being triggered by this, or do they want somebody to be able to trigger him with something that's common enough that anybody could find it to be able to trigger him whenever they need mm-hmm. to?
3: Maybe that's what it is. But I still feel like you'd want him accessible at all times. So you should have taught him to always have a deck in his pocket and for the queen to be close to the top.
4: Yeah, I mean, I guess. I just think that, I don't know, it's like it's a little dangerous to, yeah. uh, for him to be able to be triggered randomly like that.
3: Yeah, especially like do, do the passphrases, I guess they both need to be used in conjunction with each other. He needs to hear that sentence and then see that specific card Yeah, in that order. Shaw starts playing solitaire on the table as Marco walks in, and when Shaw turns over the Queen of Diamonds, he pauses to await instructions from the bartender.
0: So I says Don't please do me a favor, will you? Why don't you go and take yourself a cab, and go up to Central
2: Park, and go jump in the lake?
3: <laughs> Shaw turns and walks right out of the place, and Marco follows him away as closely as he can manage. He follows him all the way to the lake in Central Park, and Marco has to pull him out of the water when he jumps in. He realizes that the solitaire he was just playing at the bar is the same thing he was pantomiming with his hands in the garden club dream. The day they shot this scene was reportedly the coldest in 30 years, and they had to use a bulldozer to break a foot-thick layer of ice on the water for Harvey to jump into it.
4: They still had him jump into that? That could kill you.
3: Well, he's a foreign agent. Back at the joint intelligence operation, Marco watches a man play solitaire and The Sight of the Queen of Diamonds brings to mind an exact quote from their programming.
0: The Queen of Diamonds is reminiscent in many ways of Raymond's dearly loved and hated mother, and is the second key to clear the mechanism for any other assignment.
3: Yeah. We cut to Senator Iceland working with cue cards to memorize an upcoming speech, Eleanor interrupts the rehearsal by suggesting that they find a suitable wife for Raymond out of nowhere. For some reason, she's suddenly keen on Raymond marrying Jocelyn, the communist tart. She goes to visit Shaw to share the plan in person, and she says that she's throwing a party for Jocelyn and Thomas Jordan to celebrate her return to town. And I thought,
0: considering the rather shabby way you treated her, it might be a rather gracious gesture if I gave her a coming-home party.
3: We cut right to the party and the perfect symbol of what's wrong with congress an american flag made of caviar all right it's polish caviar (laughs) they're so relieved it's not american caviar (laughs) in the midst of the party for the jordans shaw is eagerly awaiting the arrival of his former fling when eleanor leads him into a side room and suggests he pass the time with a game of solitaire officially outing herself as his american operator Before she can give him instructions, though, she's called briefly out of the room for a moment, and Raymond is visited through a different door by Jocelyn Jordan herself, by complete coincidence, dressed as the Queen of Diamonds. By coincidence. Mm -hmm. At first, it looks like part of another hallucination, but I don't think it is. I think she's actually wearing a costume of the Queen of Diamonds.
1: Which is also unusual, because you think Queen of Hearts would be more common uh, as a costume choice. Yeah.
3: Eleanor meets with Thomas Jordan outside the party and admits that her husband has no shot at president, but suggests a nomination for vice president. She wants to know if Jordan will use his political power to block that nomination, and he admits he would. Later we see Marco with Rosie, and he does a little card trick by asking her to pick one at random and identifying it as the Queen of Diamonds, but he quickly admits that the deck is all identical cards. In the middle of explaining the trick, Marco proposes to her. As if on cue, they're visited by the newly married Raymond and Jocelyn Shaw. And I can't tell if they actually loved each other enough to get married or if Raymond just took her orders because she was dressed as the Queen of Diamonds. But he seems happy about it.
1: Would you like to get married? Can you Uh, phrase that in the form of a statement? Yes.
3: (laughs) Tell me to. He's even cracking jokes. Not great ones, but he's excited by this development. When Raymond steps into the next room, Marco for some reason confesses to Jocelyn that Raymond is sick and he intends to have the man brought for questioning as a potential sleeper agent for foreign powers. Jocelyn (laughs) insists- gives
1: her an awful lot of information.
3: Why are you telling his new wife all of this? Because she's for sure not going to be take your side of this. Jocelyn insists he's mistaken. Later we see Jocelyn and Shaw enjoying marital bliss when suddenly Raymond's stepfather fills their television screen and accuses Jocelyn's father of high treason- and demands impeachment proceedings. Raymond asks Jocelyn to please hurry to her father to convey his apology while he confronts Senator Iceland on his own. Unfortunately, upon his arrival at the Iceland home, his mother employs another deck of cards to hypnotize him, and we cut away before we hear her orders. We see Raymond approaching the home of Senator Jordan, who appears happy to see him step inside. He congratulates his new son-in-law on his recent wedding vows and admits he can see true happiness on his daughter's face. He offers Raymond a celebratory toast, but freezes when he notices Raymond has brought a weapon tonight.
2: What the hell is that in your hand?
3: It's a pistol, sir.
2: Is that a silencer? Yes, sir. Why are you carrying a pistol? Raymond, what are
0: you
3: He shoots the senator through a carton of milk, and the dairy wound spills to the floor. Raymond approaches the downed senator and shoots him point blank in the head, just as Jocelyn happens upon them, and then he turns the gun on her and puts one through her forehead before wandering out of the building in a daze.
1: This was also a very intense yeah. and troubling scene. Like, because we don't know how much he is aware in the back of his mind of what he's doing. Yeah. I mean, given the nightmares that they've been experiencing, something is go- coming through.
3: But he just feels so robotic. Yeah. And also his perfect shots too are that mm-hmm. much more scary.
1: Um, But pretty accurate gun suppression sound. Yeah. Like it it wasn't like the James Bond like. Pew, pew. It's yeah. like it's just it's it's an actual snap but a quiet a more quiet snap.
3: Yeah. We cut to a dutch angle shot of Marco arriving home with a newspaper in his hand and though the headline only reads Senator Jordan and daughter found slain he seems to have deduced the culprit on his own.
1: Yeah. And it's your fault. Yep. for letting them go. But he
3: admits that right away.
0: Ben, What is it?
3: Raymond Shaw shot and killed his
0: wife earlier this morning.
3: We cut to a press conference where Senator Iceland claims that his stepson is praying for the strength to carry on in the wake of this unpredictable tragedy. Raymond puts in a call to Marco at the intelligence office and seems very confused about what he's done. He admits that he's having the same dreams that Marco and Melvin described. He tells Marco his hotel room and they make plans to meet, so Marco brings a pack of cards to the meeting. A television in the corner of the room broadcasts the news that Senator Iceland is the official vice presidential nominee. By the time Marco gets to the hotel, Raymond seems to have concluded what he's done. Marco hands him a deck of all Queens of Diamond and goes to work erasing all of Raymond's programming and replacing it with the truth, mostly, starting with the fictional military operation for which he earned his Congressional Medal of Honor. He even takes the opportunity to learn the truth from Raymond.
2: What happened? The patrol was taken by a Russian airborne unit and flown by helicopter. Cross the Manchurian border to a place called Tungwa. We were worked on for three days by a team of specialists from the
3: Pavlov Institute in Moscow. Raymond is very sweaty for this whole scene, and Marco across the table is fully out of focus.
1: Yeah. I I made a note of that too. I don't understand is that intentional for the scene you
3: think not to affect the mood of the scene as critics have applauded frankenheimer for but because sinatra refused to do second takes unless it was absolutely necessary and this wasn't deemed necessary
4: being out of focus wasn't deemed necessary no
3: necessary i guess in this case meant like literally the film runs out and you have to get it again because you don't even have the line huh apparently he did talk him into multiple takes of this line but they were not as good as the first take because sinatra very clearly didn't care after the first take, whenever he was forced to do more. When he turns over a second queen, Raymond admits to the test kill of Mr. Gaines, and then the political assassinations of Senator Jordan and Jocelyn. Marco wipes all of these memories from his head for Raymond's own good.
2: Now the big one. Why, why is all of this being done? What have they built you to do? I don't think anybody really knows except there it's over on Moscow and my American operator here.
3: Marco spreads out the full deck of queens and demands that Raymond reject all of his programming and never take orders from any queen again. The phone rings and he moves to answer it with Marco's permission. It's time for my American operator to give me the plan.
2: Yes. Yes, I understand, Mother.
3: Marco gives Raymond his number at the office and asks to be updated as soon as Raymond hears of a specific plan. Why would now, you now leave- go off on your own, crazy <laughs> assassin man?
1: I would, I would stick to him like glue. Also, the fact that he never asked who the American operator was—he
3: knows because he said yes, mother.
1: But but now but. But he kept saying American operator before, and Marco never asked. And then when he says mother, it's like this big revelation to Sinatra. It's like, well, you should have asked. Yeah. <laughs> Why, you, if, he, if he hadn't said mother, you wouldn't have ever known.
3: Yeah. Back in Eleanor's office, she tells Raymond that he'll dress like a priest for escape purposes, and Chun-Jin will give him a Soviet-era sniper rifle. He is to take a shot from a spotlight booth at Madison Square Garden, and his target is the presidential nominee, Benjamin K. Arthur. And then, Senator Iceland, the VP candidate, will lift the man's body and give a passionate speech caked in his running mate's blood. The speech is short,
0: but it's the most rousing speech I've ever read. It's been worked on here and in Russia on and off for over eight years.
3: She even gives him a specific line to punctuate with his gunshot.
0: You are to hit him right at the point that he finishes the phrase... Nor would I ask of any fellow American, in defense of his freedom, that which I would not gladly give myself. My life before my liberty. Is that absolutely clear?
3: Now, Eleanor takes a moment to apologize to her son for using him this way. When she made the deal with the communists, she didn't know they'd be using her own son for the scheme, and they did it to test her allegiance to the plan. She promises to avenge them.
4: I don't understand I'm, I'm I'm just confused because she's obviously like you know accusing everyone else of being a communist but yes. she herself is a communist yes or why yeah. is she's she... cooperating with the communists why so? is she working with them
3: because she wants her husband to be president the vice president and eventually the president so that she can run the country through him it's the same as house of cards basically
4: okay But she's not pro-communist. She's just pro-I-get-what-I-want-out-of-this-deal. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Same as any anti-communist.
1: She's going to get rich from collaborating with the communists. There's nothing more capitalistic than
0: that. (laughs) (laughs) But now we have come almost to the end. One last step. And then when I take power, they will be pulled down and ground into dirt for what they did to you. And what they did in so contemptuously underestimating me.
3: She leans forward and plants a big kiss on her son's lips, which she hides with her hand for censorship purposes. This is the last vestigial detail of what was a much more explicit incestual plotline in the book.
4: What?
3: We cut to the convention as Raymond takes his place in the booth overlooking the stage. Back in the office, Marco panics as the convention begins because he still hasn't heard from Raymond and has no idea if its efforts have done anything to undo Raymond's programming.
1: Also, they're not at the convention already.
3: Yeah. They're watching it on television and it's like about to start and he's like, oh, I should probably go there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is a bad idea. (laughs) Eventually, he makes the obvious choice to head to the garden where they actually have a chance at preventing the assassination if it's still going to happen. The convention is packed when Marco and another agent arrive, and Raymond opens his window at the back of the venue, and then opens a briefcase to remove a sniper rifle and assemble it. After the national anthem, the presidential candidate is invited to the podium to say a few words, and the lights go down. Marco spots a lone bulb in the rafters, illuminating the small spotlight booth from which Raymond has been instructed to take his shot. Marco makes a run for the stairs to interrupt the plot, but before he can, Raymond gets candidate Arthur in his crosshairs and holds on the man for a few seconds. But then, before pulling the trigger, he swings the crosshairs over to Senator Iceland, seated on the stage behind Arthur. Just as the president mentions the key phrase, Raymond shoots his stepfather in the forehead. My life my liberty. He re racks the rifle and then shoots his mother before she can escape the stage. Raymond puts on his Medal of Honor just before Marco bursts into the room.
2: You couldn't have stopped them. The army couldn't have stopped them. So I had to. That's why I didn't call.
3: And then Raymond turns the gun on himself.
2: Oh, God, Ben.
3: We get one last relatively unnecessary scene, with Marco reading to Rosie the feats of other Medal of Honor winners, and then adding Shaw's own accomplishments to the passage.
2: Made to commit acts too unspeakable to be cited here. by an enemy who had captured his mind and his soul. He freed himself at last. And in the end, heroically and unhesitatingly gave his life to save his country. Raymond Shaw.
3: And we fade to black for the end. Changes from the book. For whatever reason, in the book, the hypnotists also made Raymond into a ladies' man when they return him to America, which aids him in winning back the hand of Jocelyn Jordan. Instead of being a part of the intelligence team himself, Marco's love interest, Rosie, is actually the ex-fiancé of one of the agents on the team, But the most glaring change is the full-on incestual relationship between Raymond and his mother, which is indicated to have been a result of a previous incestual relationship with her own father, to whom Raymond bears a striking resemblance. In the scene where they kiss in the film, the book suggests quite a bit more than kissing happened. She's taking advantage of her last moments in control of her son. The ending changes a bit too because instead of Marco trying to undo the man's programming, he actually programs Raymond to kill the Icelands and then himself. What Oh Jesus which is much darker. Whoa, yeah.
4: that is totally different. Yeah. I like that they gave him back his autonomy on that one. Yeah. yeah.
1: Although uh if I were in charge of brainwashing, I would have a fail-safe brainwashing mechanism built in. Yeah, like, so that they couldn't shoot the specific people or or that you couldn't be deprogrammed without a certain key phrase being entered first. Yeah, maybe.
4: I feel like I would have shot the mother first and then Maybe. shot the because she's the one who who, who is enacting the plot right. so yeah. if she survives i feel like that could be problematic whereas but senator
3: iceland can't do this on his own
4: right so yeah. i'm like you know but like if you're planning on shooting them both first shot is the mom, second shot is the senator
3: that makes sense uh and then in 2004 we said there was a remake film that came out mm-hmm So the first and most significant change in the remake is that rather than his stepfather running for vice president, Raymond Shaw is up for the position himself. Instead of being programmed by agents of an enemy nation, the titular Manchurian candidate is an asset of a multinational corporation called Manchurian Global. Instead of using hypnotism... Manchurian Global employs nanotech and computer chip (laughs) implants to affect the decision-making of their candidate, but the biggest change comes in the form of a last-minute twist that reveals that Shaw is not the titular Manchurian candidate at all. When Marco finally gets through to him, we learn that Marco was intended to be the assassin from the beginning, which is why they let him look crazy in front of everyone else for the whole film. Marco is instructed to assassinate the presidential nominee when he and Raymond step out on stage, but his trance broken... Raymond maneuvers his own mother into the bullet's path and they take the shot together, collapsing to the floor. Another less important change is that the Janet Lee character in the remake, played by Kimberly Elise, turns out to be an FBI agent, keeping tabs on Marco in case he's the Manchurian candidate. But it reminded me a lot of Peggy Carter's niece in Winter Soldier. Mm. That she's like following him around and flirting with him randomly. Weirdly, the scene on the train uses almost the exact same dialogue, which is already disorienting, but is now also anachronistic. And she gives her phone number to Marco in the same outdated style. Eldorado
0: 59970. It's
4: my cell phone number in case you ever, you know. I like to say it the old-fashioned
3: way. But yeah, the biggest difference is that Marco becomes the shooter. Right, right. And he tries to kill himself after he takes out the targets on the floor, but the Rosie character busts in and saves him at the last second
0: because
1: mm-hmm. i'm sure that was his programming was to
3: kill yourself immediately yeah. after yeah
1: no questions
3: yeah so the assassin
1: will not be taking questions <laughs>
3: exactly so that's uh, the manchurian candidate
1: it's pretty intense like the 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 blood splatter to me was was one of the more remarkable things that i think i've seen in a movie of its time yeah, yeah.
3: And uh, it being in black and white makes it feel even crazier.
1: Yeah. It, it, cause it's just, it's so meaty. Yeah. It, it's not just like a ketchup splatter, it's, it's chunks. There's, There's brain. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot of brain in it.
4: <laughs> when you say meaty, you're not, say, you're not like weighty in its essence. You yeah. Need literal chunks. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. Someone took a, a, a can of like Hormel chili and just <laughs> threw it against the wall. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I mean, I hadn't seen it. I liked it. Uh, it's a little long. I feel yeah, like, I feel like we could have cut this down a little bit.
3: I think th- the biggest weakness of the story is that it is a little bit slow in between the scenes where this person is doing killing without any control of himself, um, which I think is really interesting. And I think the whole like I I love the. The juxtaposition of like oh take a gun shoot this guy in the head that you like like that you just told Mm. us you like and they just do it no question and i i think that it could have used a lot more assassinations like that there's actually more killings in the book or at least they imply that they've been using raymond this way for a long time um to take out other opposition people
1: Yeah, and this movie also needed less of all right i'm gonna let you go go off on your own like yeah but both those times where he's where he's just like yeah I'm, I'm not gonna stick by you
3: all right i'm trusting you
1: on this crazy man <laughs> crazy man who gets instructions and who, who just shot his wife this morning <laughs> the depths of which we do not know how deep you are programmed that's what i was saying like i would have a fail save. yeah I, I was like yeah show him all the queen of diamonds you want doesn't matter his base programming will yeah. never be touched
3: and if any of the other men in this room try to deprogram him you shoot them in the head as yeah soon as exactly away But it is weird that Marco's being programmed is irrelevant, except that he gets to have this dream.
1: Yeah. I, I guess the only relevance is that they repeat that repeat the story and repeat that they how great they think that he is. Which plays more to me in the in the remake. Right. That he that he is intended that the Shaw character is intended to become president. Yeah. Because I had seen the remake. And it's been a while since I've seen the original and I knew there was a presidential thing in the original, but I was like, was he the president nominee in the original? I couldn't remember. No. Um and uh, uh I really do I, I do kind of like the conditioning stuff that they do in the remake where they have like them in, in, in strapped to like like clockwork orange esque simulators yeah, yeah, yeah. like going through the the a simulation of what happened and how he saved them so it wasn't burned into their minds. Right. Um and I also appreciate that this movie doesn't do that like the the 62 version doesn't we don't need it hammer at home what these guys have been through we, we we're seeing the end result already right but the the depths of marco's programming because they said that they need him so he's got alternate instructions and and to me you, you can never be clear or sure of anything that you're going to do ever Right. Like he can't ever work in Army intelligence ever again.
3: yeah he should not be have been allowed in that building yeah except to be questioned exactly. like in a locked room
1: yeah you 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 have to be monitored forever.
3: yeah And it is weird that they only sent two people out there and it's like isn't there isn't this building already swarming with secret service agents? yeah the the presidential candidate is here that they should be very safe. They should also checked every one of these booths before they went in. but it's still a thumbs up obviously. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. definitely up. definitely a thumbs up
3: and i i think the performance from sinatra is impressive for for someone who i guess we're mostly seeing first takes of yeah um but well,
4: it was much better for me than first deadly sin yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was rough yeah
3: <laughs> but uh like in first deadly sin i feel like the uh the female characters are a little bit wasted like the Rosie character doesn't really play a part in anything now that we've now that her fiance is yeah. no longer a member of the squad that's investigating Shaw, she serves almost no purpose. And even Jocelyn is like really just there as a trophy. She's, she doesn't like have a lot of characterization.
4: But his mother is a, a unique character. I that's mean, true, yeah, you know, yeah. No. Like the, that's that's pretty honestly Landsbury, special for the time.
3: Yeah, but I just thought it was weird that, that both characters have lo- love interests and that the love interests are, they don't really get much to do.
4: I mean, I um, think the fact that they have an older female antagonist is is probably a first.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And Lansbury's obviously amazing yeah. in the part.
1: Well what about the wicked witch?
4: Yeah, I suppose.
3: But witches witches <laughs> witches are
4: classically women, so I don't think that that's a that's, that's a fair. stretch.
3: So are mothers. <laughs>
4: <laughs> classically mothers are women, yeah, sure. <laughs>
3: In the remake, the uh, Jocelyn Jordan and Thomas Jordan characters are uh, Vera Farmiga and John Voight. And uh, Vera Farmiga gets even less to do in that version of it. Like, we don't even see the, the little precursor flashback moment. We just see him, like, finding her at a party and going like, oh, hey, I miss you. And then we cut right to him killing the father and then killing her. Um, and then I, I feel like they're kind of referencing the jumping in the lake scene because when he kills senator jordan he's drowning him in a kayak so like he was just rowing across the water and then suddenly leave schreiber is just wandering out into the water and and just pushes him under the water and holds him down
1: you know they say about kayak drown one and then done is that what they say no because kayak.com search one then done Uh,
3: anyway (laughs) this show is sponsored by (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
4: kayak.com
3: dot com
4: nope (laughs) wrong one
3: nope (laughs) <laughs> Travelocity.com Expedia? <Is> Expedia.com <laughs> Worst jingle ever <laughs> What if we make a jingle that anyone can use And no one can remember what product it goes to
1: Because everything
3: Is .com. That's, .com. The part that, that's the part you're
1: emphasizing
3: <laughs> Perfect We're selling the internet to people
4: <laughs> It worked
3: <laughs> um, Yeah uh, Thumbs up all around Good stuff Our uncredited writer and director here was John Frankenheimer. Before this, he directed a lot of the action anthology series Climax on television and Birdman of Alcatraz. Later, he directs The Gypsy Moths, I Walk the Line, 99 and 44, 100% Dead, French Connection 2, Black Sunday, Prophecy, The Holcroft Covenant, The 96, Island of Dr. Moreau, Ronin, and Reindeer Games. I didn't realize I'd seen a Frankenheimer movie in theaters, but I have. Yeah. Was Ronin. <laughs> the, yep. No. Was ninety-nine for forty-four and
4: 100 percent dead? Is that one title?
3: It's called ninety-nine and forty-four one hundred percent dead.
4: What is what is that? <laughs>
3: okay. <laughs> We've discussed this on the show before. Oh, did I have the same
4: question? <laughs>
3: no. Willy Wonka. In in Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. Oh, okay. When he's turning the knob on the chocolate from it says ninety-nine forty-four one hundred percent pure which was a slogan for soap. 99
2: and 44 100% pure.
3: But there's a movie called 99 and 44 100% dead, which is a terrible pun (laughs) on that existing corporate slogan. Rumors also persist that Frankenheimer is the biological father of director Michael Bay, but Bay does not like discussing the matter. It was at least enough of a possibility that I believe Frankenheimer did submit to a paternity test, but I don't know if the results have been publicly disclosed. Interesting. Yeah. Novelist Richard Condon also wrote the novel adapted into Winter Kills and the novel and screenplay for Pritzy's Honor. Writer George Axelrod wrote the original play and the adapted screenplay for The Seven Year Itch. The screenplay for Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Lady Vanishes, and The Holcroft Covenant, and obviously gets a credit in the 2004 remake of this film. The music here was from David Amram, he also composed the music for Splendor in the Grass and The Young Savages, among others. Cinematographer Lionel Linden was the DP of Around the World in 80 Days and Going My Way. Editor Ferris Webster previously edited The Long Long Trailer and The Magnificent Seven. Later he cuts Great Escape, Ice Station Zebra, Zigzag, and then a lot of Eastwood stuff. High Plains Drifter, Breezy, Magnum Force, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Outlaw Josie Wales, The Enforcer, The Gauntlet, Every Which Way But Loose, Escape from Alcatraz, and so far on the show, Bronco Billy in Any Which Way You Can. Frank Sinatra played Major Bennett Marco. He was Clarence Doolittle in Anchors Away, Angelo Maggio in From Here to Eternity, Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls, Barbary Coast Saloon Pianist in Around the World in 80 Days, Danny Ocean in Ocean's Eleven. Later, he's Joe Leland in The Detective, a film technically sequelized with Die Hard, which is why producers were contractually obligated to offer the part of John McClane to Sinatra first. And, of course, last season we saw him and Willis together in a scene from The First Deadly Sin. Lawrence Harvey played Raymond Shaw. He was Romeo in the 54 Romeo and Juliet. Colonel William Barrett Travis in The Alamo and Weston Amsbury-Liggett in Butterfield 8. Janet Lee played Eugenie Rose Chaney. She was Marion Crane in Psycho, and we've seen her so far alongside her daughter, Jamie Lee Curtis, in John Carpenter's The Fog. But most importantly, 1972's Night of the Lepus. She comes back to play another Rosie the following year in Bye Bye Birdie. Angela Lansbury played Mrs. Eleanor Shaw Iceland. Her first feature film appearance was as Nancy in Gaslight, a movie which has now become a verb.
4: So I was looking up the Butterfield Eight for you. Yeah. Do you know what Butterfield Eight is? What? It's like El Dorado Five. Yeah,
3: that's why I said Butterfield Eight is the example before.
4: Oh, okay. Sorry, I don't. I didn't know what you were talking about. Oh, I okay. thought you. I. I. I, I okay. I hadn't heard of Butterfield 8, so now that I realized that that is a movie, oh. and I was like, why on earth did they capitalize both these letters? And then I started watching the trailer when it when it auto-played when I clicked on IMDb, yeah. and I was like, oh, that's a phone number.
3: Ah. She was Sybil Vane in Portrait of Dorian Gray, Queen Anne in The Three Musketeers, Miss Price in Bedknobs and Broomsticks, and she was Mrs. Salome Otterborn in Death on the Nile. We've seen her so far in The Mirror Cracked. Later, she's the voice of Mommy Fortuna in The Last Unicorn, Granny in In the Company of Wolves, Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast, and she's Jessica Fletcher in 264 episodes of Murder, she wrote. And for no reason, she didn't get the James Earl Jones treatment when the live-action Beauty and the Beast came along. I feel like she could have easily just played the same character again. Although she could have done that for the 2004 Manchurian Candidate also. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just come back and play the same character.
1: Well, when the uh, special edition of the Bedknobs and Broomsticks DVD came out, uh, they had found footage that uh, had been cutting room floor footage but had no audio. Oh, interesting. Um, so they reincorporated the footage and they actually got Angela Lansbury as the only person who to was- To ADR herself? Yeah. Because she was the only person who could because- David Tomlinson had passed away and all the kids are grown up. That'd be weird to have his voice coming out of her mouth anyway. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> She just said all the voices. Yeah. Um
4: oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if um I wonder if now you could take the entire movie and any other movies that he had done and like learn it through AI and just, oh, for sure. yeah. And yeah. just put his voice back in that segment because it was missing. It's like you're not it's it's him and it's his mm-hmm. voice. You're just using it for more of him. Yeah.
1: And he had done plenty of Disney
3: stuff
4: that they would that, own the rights to exactly yeah
3: and we haven't seen it yet but uh apparently she makes a cameo in glass onion potentially as herself or at least she's just credited as angela lansbury and in, in what we can find
1: there's a lot of crazy as themselves characters in this movie
3: interesting well and we also i should mention just lost her in the last month which is why carlos picked this movie is this is a angela lansbury memorial episode henry silva played chun jin He voiced Bane in 98 for Superman the Animated Series and a few times before that on various Batman series. We've seen him so far in Alligator and Virus Day of Resurrection and moving forward he's in Sharky's Machine, Megaforce, Cannonball Run 2, Dick Tracy, Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai and his final credit was as a boxing spectator in Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven with a different Danny Ocean. Um, Also worth mentioning that he just recently passed away so we've lost both of them this year. James Gregory played Senator John Yerkes Iceland. He's probably most recognizable as Inspector Frank Luger in 66 episodes of Barney Muller. Barney Muller? Miller. That's probably Miller, right? <laughs> Leslie Parrish played Jocelyn Jordan. Not much else I recognized, but she's Ev in The Giant Spider Invasion. Mm. John McGiver played Senator Thomas Jordan. He was a salesperson at Tiffany's in Breakfast at Tiffany's. He's Mr. O'Daniel in Midnight Cowboy. And Leonard Sharp in the Apple Dumpling Gang, Keeg Deeg played Dr. Yen Lo. He was also Woe Fat on Hawaii Five-O. James Edwards played Alan Melvin. He was Whitaker in the Cane Mutiny, Sergeant Jackson in Coogan's Bluff, and Sergeant Meeks in Patton. Albert Paulson played Zilkov. He was Camarero in the Laughing Policeman. Barry Kelly played the Secretary of Defense. He's Lieutenant Dietrich in the Asphalt Jungle and Carol's dad on Mr. Ed. Lloyd Corrigan played Holborn Games. He was the mayor in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Jack Burrell played a reporter, uncredited. He's the older brother of Milton Burrell. Cool. I just had to look it up because I saw Burrell. Wit Bissell played... <laughs> that's the coolest name ever. Wit Bissell <laughs> played Can a it, medical officer. Gonna wit your Bissell? <laughs> I was thinking he's like an inventor of a vacuum cleaner or something. He played Shamley in The Magnificent Seven, Thompson in The Creature from the Black Lagoon, Governor Santini in Soylent Green, and Walter Kemp in The Time Machine. Paul Frees was the voice of the narrator at yeah. the beginning. Uh, he's a very accomplished voice actor who we'll hear next as Mabruk in The Last Unicorn. Mabruk? I don't, I've never seen that movie. He was Boris on The Bullwinkle Show. He was The Thing on the 60s Fantastic Four series. He's done narrator and announcer voices for his entire career, dating back to the early 40s. But the first one I always think of is the voice of Disney's Haunted Mansion.
2: Is this haunted room actually stretching?
1: You you said Ludwig von
3: Drake, right? I did not, but that's another great voice. Yeah, Ludwig von Drake is my favorite. He always showed up on the wonderful world of Disney as that Mm -hmm. character. The following year, Freeze and Sinatra split duty portraying a character in The List of Adrian Messenger, whose voice is provided by ADR from Freeze for one scene where the character's in disguise. and the rest of the film, it's Sinatra doing the voice. Harry Holcomb played a general, uncredited. We just had him as man in restaurant in The Other Side of Midnight. Remember man in restaurant?
1: I do, because I remember we were wondering who the man Making
3: a joke about that, because there were so many- Colin Kenny played Senator Uncredited. He was Sir Baldwin in the Errol Flynn Robin Hood. He was Lord Chester Dyke in Captain Blood and a Greystoke Nephew in Tarzan of the Apes in 1918. John Lawrence played Grossfeld. He wrote The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant. <laughs> Maurice Marks played a reporter. He was a production manager in Alligator and a second unit director on Hopscotch. We saw him last season as a gambler in Little Miss Marker. And the last credit I have here is for Francis E. Neely, who played a woman in the lobby, she is the chambermaid from Ghostbusters. What the hell are you doing? (laughs) Sorry, we thought you were someone else.
0: What the hell are you doing?
3: Sorry. Sorry, I'm sorry. We thought you were someone else. I think that's everything for the Manchurian candidate. Thanks again to Carlos Mota for their generous contribution to the show. If there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with a trailer for The Manchurian Candidate.